Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the book of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Here's our text. Flourishing are those who are mourning because they will be comforted. One of the striking things about the Beatitudes is how contrary they are to the way we view the world, then and now, especially this one, the second Beatitude. It's contrary to the way we think. I mean, literally, happy are the sad? That makes no sense. Uh, Who in their right mind wants to mourn? I mean, mourning means tears, grief. Mourning means funerals, cemeteries, empty places at the table. Mourning means losing what is most dear to us. Nobody wants to mourn. The second beatitude is also contrary to our culture. I mean, I took a field trip. When you want a 10-minute swath of American culture, you go to Barnes & Noble and walk the magazine rack. There is America. Culture. Here's what I saw. Here's my report. I saw 100 women with hair, perfect bodies, and fluorescent white teeth. And then I saw 100 men with hair, Perfect bodies and fluorescent white teeth. I saw one face that might have the second beatitude on it. It was on psychology today. But even then, 
It was about depression, but the promise of a new personalized treatment. I kept looking. I found Forbes. Of course, there's always smiling faces of Forbes when you're a billionaire. And then I went to the queen of culture, Oprah. And she's happy because every person has a story with the power to crack you wide open. I'm not sure what that means. But nobody wants to mourn. And I wondered after that, would we find the second beatitude at Waterstone? I would submit to you that this flourishing when we're mourning is contrary even to church culture. One of the blogs I followed over the last years is called The White Horse Inn. And their goal is to bring reformation to the modern church. And one of the things they do occasionally is evaluate American worship. Several years ago, they did just that, surveyed, visited tons of American churches, like ours, evangelicals. And uh, (laughs) the article became their most downloaded podcast. I don't know if it still is. The name of it... (laughs) Their view on the American church, the title of the podcast was called The Happy Clappy Church. Here's how they described it. Contemporary Christian worship is almost exclusively upbeat and happy clappy. But is this the type of worship that is pictured for us in the Psalms? The American church has little tolerance for grief, brokenness over sin, or the fruits of injustice or real hardship. I mean, honestly, how many of you have walked in here feeling that you need to paint on a smile and fudge your way through, even though inside you're feeling sad, mad, or bad. Nobody wants to mourn. Yet, Jesus says, if you're going to be like me, it seems to involve a broken heart. So let's ask, shall we? What does it mean to mourn? What does it mean to be comforted? That's where we're going. Before we do, I want to insert something. I think the only way to understand the striking contrariness of these Beatitudes is to continually remind ourselves that it's always in the context of the kingdom in which this teaching sits. Jesus Christ came so that we could be born again, as he says in John 3, born again into the kingdom of God. And so we must always keep these beatitudes set in the kingdom. So what's the kingdom? Jesus came in the gospel of Mark, the first words out of his mouth, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the kingdom of God? Well, one of the ways I suggest 
to understand the kingdom is to think about what happens when a, and we've just experienced this in Colorado, when a new administration takes power, when we get a new governor or a new president or a new CEO or a new pastor, there's new power and there's new plans and there's new procedures and there's new a new administration takes over and how effective that administration will be will be how they improve the quality of life for the common good now when we're talking about Jesus who is the son of god who is the ultimate king his administration what shall we say it's deep in transformation it's wide in restoration it works Now, the way it works is that deep transformation from the king settles into the administration, and the administration carries it out. Now, who is the administration? Take your index finger and point to yourself. You are the administration. You are the replacements. You are carrying out the plans, the priorities, the policies of the king. You are the administration. And how do you function? You function because you've been deeply transformed inside out, a new heart, and then with that new heart, wanting to be like Jesus and wanting to carry out his plans, you move out into the world and you carry out the restoration. You carry it out widely. And so, what these beatitudes are, and here's how we have to frame them and understand them, is they describe the deep transformation that happens in a follower so that the follower can carry out the administration, the kingdom of God. So let me say something very practical. You may have walked in this morning, I think we all wrestle with this at times, asking, how do I know that I'm a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ. Jesus, with these Beatitudes, cuts straight at it. You know, what makes you a Christian is not all the good works you've done. What makes you a Christian is not that you prayed a prayer or walked an aisle when you were a child. That's just the birth canal. That's just the form of, of how you got here. No, what makes you a Christian is... When you read the Beatitudes, do you see yourself? It's a mirror. Look into it. Do you find your life reflected by those qualities? That's what a Christian is. Someone who's been deeply transformed by the grace and mercy of Christ. What he's done on the cross, it settles into the heart, changes your heart, and suddenly you are Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, all these qualities. It's not eight different people. It's not eight different personality types. All of these qualities define someone who has entered the kingdom of God. Now, I know that we're all works in progress. I know that it's up and down. I know that it's start and stop. I, I, I know. It will never fully reflect in our life now these eight qualities. But yet, when we hear them, And when we hear Jesus say them, there should be some semblance to our life now.
something to think about, pray about. Last week, Paul kicked it off. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus did. And that is the idea that when we come to God, we bring nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus saves us. We are totally, utterly dependent on him. We are spiritually bankrupt. We always need God. That's where it starts, relationship with him. And the second beatitude about mourning is the emotional counterpart to the first. When we realize that we're spiritually bankrupt and we need God, we mourn. When we understand how bankrupt we are. So what does it mean to mourn? The word itself speaks of deep loss. It means feelings and expression when you lose what's dear to you. It usually means, and is used in context, of losing a loved one to death. But it could speak of any kind of change in life. And by the way, that's usually what grieving is. It's responding to the loss of control in an area of your life. Loss of job, loss of friendship, loss of a season in your life, loss of a loved one, all of that. Deep grief. Well, well, how deep? What's interesting is sometimes the word in scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is translated broken hearted. And I think that's a good uh, word to use about grief, broken hearted. Now in the ancient world, the ancients knew that the heart was where your thoughts come from. Your, your, it was your operating system. Your thoughts come from it. Your emotions come from it. And your decisions come from your heart. All of these things. And then when you have a deep loss your heart breaks. In other words, it affects every part of your life. After the loss, you think differently. You feel differently. You make different decisions. It's as if the, the loss itself has become transformative and you are a different person. That's the depth of the grief. You are never, ever the same after the loss. I was reminded of this, the story from NPR on Sunday edition. It's by a man, an archaeologist named Michael Newland. He tells a story. I believe that grieving is good for you. As a culture, I feel we've forgotten how to grieve. And last year, I had the opportunity to remember. My wife was seven months pregnant when her blood pressure spiked. Her liver started to shut down, so the doctors performed a cesarean on our son, and he was delivered to save both their lives. Over the next two weeks, my wife's health stabilized. My son's condition, however, deteriorated. The lungs of premature babies are as delicate as a spider web, and they shred at the slightest pressure. I wanted to put him inside my chest and give him my lungs to breathe with. We went from holding him to putting a hand on his head to at the end with all the tubes and wires only being able to lay one finger on the back of his hand. His lungs failed and we had to let him go. We never heard him cry. My wife and I, first time parents, held him as he died. We bathed him, washed his hair, dressed him 
before he was cremated. As each day passes, you close your eyes and you let your grief slide through your fingers, one rough, cold link after another, until your loss settles deep inside you. At first, you are certain that your life is going to capsize and you will drown. Eventually, the grief will ground you and give you stability in troubled times. I am a better husband, a better father, and a better man for my loss. I'm kinder, more empathetic, and I have different priorities. Our marriage was reforged. The impurities burned out of the relationship by the furnace of this loss. To be with your child nearly every minute of his life is a gift few parents get. And my son died in the arms of people who loved him. Ten months ago, my wife gave birth to our healthy daughter, and I am filled with a joy made greater by the loss of my son, because I know now what we have. When my daughter turned to look at me for the first time, I picked her up and held her with everything that I had. It's a deep grief from which we are never the same. It's deep. The other thing to know about this beatitude, it's plural. That is, it's in community. That is, it's public. We remind you of this every week that the Beatitudes are not about you and God, they're about us and God and what kind of community we will be and what you will bring into this community. The mourning is public. It's what the Jews described, and you may have heard this phrase, sitting shiva. In the Jewish community, when there was a loss, you would go and sit with that mourner and that mourner's family for seven days and you would sit on a stool or on the ground to symbolize how you've been brought low by this loss and then you would wear a garment that you ripped and you would wear that in the house to symbolize that this grief has torn the fabric of your life and then you would not speak unless the mourner spoke That was not to deny the grief, that was to intensify the grief. And it was deep grief experienced together. Flourishing are those who mourn. So the question is, what do we mourn? Two things, one of which we see Jesus doing with us, one of which, the other, he could never do. We mourn, first of all, this kind of grief around our world. We mourn the sins of the world. We mourn the brokenness of the world. And we see this throughout Scripture. We see the psalmist doing it in Psalm 119. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. They don't know God. We see Ezra doing it when he gets word. He was a priest, and he heard that some of the, his congregation had left the faith and were pursuing foreign gods. And Ezra tears his clothes, and listen, some of you guys with beards, he pulls his beard out. Eesh. That's 
grief. <laughs> and then he gets on his knees and says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. And he puts himself with his community, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We grieve the brokenness of the world. We grieve the brokenness of our community, even the church community. We mourn for those sins. But we also see Jesus doing this. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus mourning for the sins of the world. To set this, Lazarus was one of Jesus' closest friends. He gets word that Lazarus is desperately sick and about to die. But for some reason, Jesus decides to wait four days before making the one-day journey to see Lazarus before he dies. Now, Jesus knew exactly why and what he was doing. In fact, he makes this cryptic comment to his disciples. Well, Lazarus, he's not dead. He's asleep. And the disciples are, no, he, he's dead. He's dead. We, we know what death means. We're the experts on it. He's dead. No, you see, if you understand me, you understand that not even death is the end. So, Four days later, after Lazarus was in the tomb, he comes. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And here's the word, Jesus mourned wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, why, why did Jesus weep? He wept, first of all, because Jesus knows the devastation of death and what it does to human hearts and families. So when we lose someone, we know that Jesus knows how we feel. Secondly, Jesus is mourning because of the unbelief of his own followers who don't understand him. Jesus knows how hard it is to believe in God, and he mourns. And lastly, after this event, and the, Jesus' pastors see Lazarus up walking around, <laughs> they say, finally, enough is enough. Jesus is going down. And they make concrete plans to kill him after this, this event. Why does Jesus mourn? Because here at the cemetery in Bethany is everything that's wrong with our world. Death, unbelief, hatred, and Jesus mourns. It breaks him. And he weeps. The first reason for us to mourn is because our world is full of death and unbelief and hatred. And following Jesus, we mourn. But there's another reason that we mourn, and this reason 
Jesus could never mourn. Because Christians admit that the world is bad and bad off. And they admit that it's a broken world. But Christians secondly and also admit the reason that the world is broken. And that reason is sin. And we mourn for our sin. Jesus had no sin. He could not mourn this. But we are called to mourn our sin because our sin is the cause of the brokenness. During the darkest days of World War I, the London Guardian, a newspaper, ran an essay contest. And the, the capture, the, the title to respond with an essay was, What's Wrong with the World? What's Wrong with the World? And one of the people who responded to the essay contest was the preeminent philosopher and journalist of the day. You've probably heard of him. His name was G.K. Chesterton, Gilbert Chesterton. Chesterton responded back with this essay. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's it. What's wrong out there starts with what's wrong in here. In every human heart, it's called sin. What's sin? Well, sin is simply wanting to do your own thing and not hold on to God's hand. You see it from when they're a toddler. You go out for a walk out here, and the toddler decides, I want to walk across bowls. And they let go of your hand and walk across bowls, and that is a scary premise. But we sin when we pull our hand out of the fathers who tells us how to live and what's best for us and what hurts us. We pull our hand from his hand and we try to navigate the streets of life on our own sin. In our adolescent world, no one has described it better, sin as an adolescent, than, uh, well, I'll sing it, you tell me who it is. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Billy Joel. Sorry, I just, I just ruined him. Leave me alone. I don't care what you say. We see it as adults. In our culture, sin is a less used word. We don't hear it much in our culture, sin. We make mistakes. We're mistakers. We, we miscalculate. We goof up. We, we fudge. We, we make mistakes, and we admit those mistakes, and we regret those mistakes, and sometimes we make amends for those mistakes, but we don't mourn mistakes. We mourn sin. Sin is a fundamental flaw of our character that makes us pull our hand from God's and want what we want, do what we want, say what we want, think what we want. 
God made us to be generous, but we move in greed. God gave us sex as a gift to reflect his relationship with us, but we trash it for our pleasure. God says, worship me and me alone, but we squeeze joy out of the new car and the new house and the new spouse, and you fill in the blank. We mourn because we are not mistakers. We are sinners who put our head in our hands when we see what's really inside. And we mourn. How do we mourn? Let me give you two practical suggestions for living this beatitude. First, pray the Psalms. You know, half of the Psalms are laments. By the way, that should also really affect how we worship, but that's for another message. Half of the Psalms are laments. The Psalms are in the Bible to teach us to pray. You don't need the best-selling book on prayer that some human wrote. What you need is the Psalms to teach you how to pray. You read one a day while you drive to work, at your dinner table, when you get up in the morning, before you go to sleep at night. One Psalm a day. Read it aloud. Read it together. One Psalm, and you will have the language of lament. You will know how to express what's broken inside, what's broken in the world. You'll know how to respond to God and others. Pray the Psalms. Now you think, well, my life's pretty good. I don't need to mourn. No, yes, you do. Do you know why? Two is one, there's bad days coming. You prepare now for the bad days coming. Pray the Psalms. Two, while you may be in a good spot, there are people in Venezuela and Afghanistan and America who need you to stand with them in their grief and in their brokenness. And you pray the laments for them. You stand with the mourner. You sit shiva. That's why you pray the Psalms. One a day so that we learn to lament. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, through this psalm, the psalm of lament, the believer may join in the prayers of those who take God seriously and whose destiny is so heavy that they need others to join in these prayers with them. For such as these, the rage must be carried to heaven because there's no other court of appeal. Love of neighbor surely means to go to court with the neighbor who is grieved. Our prayer life is selfish if it attends only to our needs. And so we pray the psalms. And then secondly, we mourn by paying attention to our emotional life. Catalog your tears. Do you know God does? In Psalm 56, it says, I list your tears on a scroll. Now, I don't know. It's poetic language. It's probably a metaphor. I'm not sure God actually has a physical list. But what I do know is that the point of the metaphor is that your tears matter to God. Your tears matter to God. He is concerned about your tears. He keeps track of your tears. He measures your grief. Do you? When was the last time you cried? Should we be crying more? Do you keep track of your tears in your journal? Brennan Manning, the late Brennan Manning, great writer, he challenges us about our tears. To ascertain where you really are with the Lord, 
Recall what saddened you in the past month. Was it the realization that you do not love Jesus enough? That you did not seek his face in prayer often enough? That you did not care for his people enough? Did, or, or did you get depressed over a lack of respect? Criticism from an authority figure? Your finances? A lack of friends? Fears about the future? Or your bulging waistline? What makes you cry? That's important. He goes on, conversely, what gladdened you the past month? Reflection on your election to the Christian community? The joy of saying slowly, Abba, Father. The afternoon you stole away for two hours with only the gospel as your companion. A small victory over selfishness. Or, or, were the sources of your joy a new car? a Brooks Brothers suit, a great date, great sex, a raise, or a loss of four inches from your hips. Your tears, your emotions are a barometer of your heart. Pay attention to your tears. Keep them, they call you back to the, to the gospel, to the, to the truth, what's important. So, what does it mean to mourn? It, it means to have deep grief and share it publicly, and we practice it by praying the Psalms and by keeping track of our tears. But what does it mean to be comforted? Flourishing are those who mourn because they are comforted. Quickly, it means this. First, when we mourn our sins, to be comforted means we are forgiven. We are forgiven. For a mistaker, there's no forgiveness. You just need to try harder. But if you are a sinner, you repent. And you give your sins to God and say, I'm sorry. And I'm changing my ways and changing my mind. And get back on track. And you are forgiven. No one's holding on to those sins. If anyone is, and it's probably you, God is not holding on to your sins. You need to let them go too. Keep the main event the main event. The main event is not your sins. The main event is what God does with your sins. So whether you walked in here with a boatload of sin, a hundred sins, give them to God right now and say, I'm sorry, I confess. He washes you clean. Whether you come in here with the same sin that you keep committing a hundred times, he washes you clean. First John if we confess our, say it with me, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are forgiven. Flourishing are the mourning because they are forgiven. Secondly, you're not only forgiven, you're loved. Romans chapter eight, verse 15 for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus puts his spirit in you to always do identity work with you, to always fix your lagging identity. Sometimes we forget who we are. Who are we? We are a child of God, loved by the Father. We're forgiven and we are loved as his child. That's our identity, identity above all other identities. I mean, frankly, the only opinion of you that counts is the Father's. Everyone else is entitled to theirs. The only one you need to listen to is the Father's. 
and he sees you as his child. I'll never forget the story Fred Smith, the late Fred Smith told about a couple that he knew who participated and did ministry in the kingdom by being foster parents. And they had scores of foster kids throughout the years. But one in particular was a really hard one. They had her, she was an early adolescent, they had her for a year. And it was rough, every day was, uh, was a battle. And uh, she stayed her year, they finally had to give her back. It was destroying their, <laughs> their marriage, their home. Years later, out of the blue, they get a letter from this girl. The letter goes on to say that she indeed struggled, but over the last few years, though she still has challenges, she's been able to get her life back on track, on the right rails, and she's making her way in life. But she wanted to share with this couple who had her for a year that what, one of the things that made a difference in her life was the prayer that they made her repeat before every meal. The prayer was this. God does not love me because I am good. God loves me because I am precious. Precious because Christ died for me. God does not love me because I'm good. God loves me because I am precious. Precious because Christ died for me. You see, it's that gospel that's always fixing our identity, always reminding us who and whose we are. We are forgiven. We're loved. The third piece of how Jesus comforts us is to remind us that nothing that happens here, even on the worst day of your life, when you die, is not the end of the story. You know, scholars in John chapter 11, they make the point that if Jesus hadn't said Lazarus' name, that everyone in a grave would have walked out. Lazarus, come forth. I declare to you that Jesus knows your name. And when he returns, he will call you out of your grave. Your body, new, dancing the hokey pokey on your grave. That's what it's all about. You will live with him forever. And that's the last thing. So we're forgiven. We're loved as the child of the Father. We are promised eternal life and resurrection. And then the last, in a place, a new Jerusalem, heaven and earth, come down. We'll live in a city unlike any city we've known here, even Denver. This city, there will be no tears and no pain, and no death. And Jesus will wipe away every tear. That's comfort bleeding in to our present. Flourishing are the morning because they will be comforted. We're forgiven. We're loved. We have resurrection and all things made new. How did all this happen? Jesus did it. Jesus did it. He accomplished. 
He died in our place for our sins. He rose from the dead. He has done it. And so even in our worst days, we have Jesus with us, bringing comfort because he has done it. In Luke 4, Jesus stands before his home church, and he did something amazing. He picked up the scroll, and he read from the gospel of Isaiah. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus has done it. He's done this. And he one day will turn all mourning into gladness. But now, now we hold on to him and we hold on to his promise. We hold on to what he's done for us. So this morning as we sing our last two songs, one of which is a lament, we're gonna have people around the room, three in the front, three in the back, and we're going to ask you to consider being anointed with the oil of gladness. You can extend your hand and get a cross of olive oil or your forehead. There are two reasons why you would consider doing this. First, perhaps you are in grief. Perhaps you've lost a loved one, you've lost your health, you've lost something that really was dear to you, and you wanna come and just say, Jesus, it's so hard, but I'm going to hold on to you I'm going to trust you. I'm going to cling to your promise that you will make up what I'm mourning with comfort. So if you're grieving, come. Be anointed with the symbol of God's presence. The second reason you may want to come and be anointed is to sit shiva with the mourners. If there's someone you know who's in grief, or if you want to identify with people in Venezuela or Afghanistan or the Sudan, wherever it is, come, sit with the mourner, and receive the oil of gladness in their behalf this morning.